Hello, and welcome to the Urban Permaculture Podcast. My name's Heather with Hogs and Hens Urban Farm, and it's been a little bit since you guys heard from me with some new content, and I wanted to explain that a little bit. Um, We talked in our last episode about homesteading and permaculture with disabilities, and I talked a little bit about my health conditions, and honestly, the last couple weeks, I've really been struggling. And between my health conditions and just a very jam-packed work schedule, I just have not had a chance to sit down and record an episode. So here we are today, and um, today's episode is actually kind of a little bit about that. Um, One of the questions that we get asked very often is that Bob and I travel a lot, both for work and for fun. And with that in mind, a lot of folks want to know how we are able to maintain our farm, even though we are always, always on the go. So today I want to talk about some of the things that we have done to make our garden flourish with as little input as possibly. And it's it's not that we're lazy or anything like that, but we have tried really hard to make it so that when we are traveling, the garden and the animals are not suffering with our absence. And so we've done a lot of different things that seem a little silly on the outside, but when I explain them, they will probably make a lot more sense. So first of all, we've talked a lot about soil in the past and Building up our garden to make sure that we have very nutrient-dense soil has been super important. So when we started our garden initially, we made sure that we used great soil. And we we did a no-till method and we, we layered cardboard on top of our existing um, lawn area and added um, composted manure as well as some compost we made and other things to create a really nutrient-rich growing environment. That has been a blessing because it means that we're not having to add additional fertilizer throughout the year while making sure that our plants are still getting the nutrition that they need and they're not lacking in anything. When we plant our plants, again, to make sure that the soil is super nutrient dense, we are planting them with a little sprinkling of compost to just kind of boost up the compost in the area around those plants to give them the best chance at a great future. We top dress our beds um, about twice a year. We we top dress them in the fall to kind of get them all tucked in and ready for winter and give the nutrients in the upper layer of compost time to kind of trickle through the different layers of our beds and get deep down into the soil. Um, we're in zone 6A in Ohio, and in the winter, we sometimes get a lot of snow, sometimes we don't get hardly any snow, and sometimes we get a little bit of a mix. But either way, there's going to be precipitation that happens in the winter, and the ground is frozen hard, so that moisture just sits on top of the soil and kind of insulates it a little. As that stuff starts to melt and the soil begins to soften, it's going to carry those nutrients that are laid right on the top of the soil deep down into the ground. And it's going to make our beds great and ready for the spring on the deeper level. 
In the spring before we start planting, we once again top dress our beds with a little bit of compost. And this means that when we go to plant our starts, they have the fertilizer from the compost that we put down in the winter and late fall, as well as the shallower level of compost on the very top level. So as it rains and things throughout the year, it's got a nice layered effect of the benefits of all of that compost. Now using compost means that we are really contributing to the uh, soil diversity and adding beneficial microbes and feeding the beneficial fungi that is in the soil. So we don't add a lot of external fertilizer. An exception to that rule would be our bananas because bananas are really, really heavy feeders. In fact, they're one of the most heavy feeders available. So with that in mind, we do add um, some liquid fertilizer to the banana tree um, to help keep them, you know, healthy and happy. But we we don't do that super often. It's not really a schedule. It's kind of more of a when I think about it situation. But for that, we have a big black storage tub that we keep in the garden. And when I do pick um, weeds that are there that I don't want growing in a particular place for whatever reason, they all get chucked into that black bucket and it's got water in it. It's full of rainwater and the sun kind of cooks those plants in that water. It drowns them and they begin to emulsify and turn into a very smelly goop. That is a gardener's revenge fertilizer, if you will. It takes all of the nutrition that is stored in that weed and it breaks it down in that water naturally and turns it into a very concentrated solution. I just put some of that water by tipping the edge of the barrel or dipping a cup into it into my watering can and I use about a cup to two cups depending on how strong I want it of um, the liquid fertilizer that I've made with my weeds and some plain water and I'll water that in from time to time. I also will sometimes use an organic fish emulsion. Now the drawback with that is it's very very smelly. It is a stinky, stinky solution, but it is great and it does have a nice balanced fertilizer um, for the soil if you are needing to add uh, nitrogen. So I add that to my plants from time to time, but again, it's mostly just my banana and only when I'm thinking about it because my soil is super fertile as it is. Now, around my banana tree, I make sure that we add some compost from time to time and top dress it. I do baby it a little bit more than the other plants, but that's because I know that it needs extra, a little extra boost. But it, it definitely helps to have that good soil so that we don't have to add that extra step of making sure I set a reminder or add it to my to-do list to fertilize. We've talked about the importance of mulching before. Well, because we do a very deep mulch on our beds and we use um, wood chips in the pathways and we use straw on our beds, um, we don't have to water hardly at all. In fact, with the drought we've had this year, we've barely gotten any rainfall for most of May and June. And I think we watered, what, three times? Yeah, three times we watered our garden in a month and a half. And that's because we have those wood chips down and that straw down. 
Now, by mulching our, our walking paths, it's going to store some of that moisture in those wood chips. It's going to be absorbed by the cellulose in the bark and in the chunks of the tree. And as the soil below and around it is is drying out, it's going to pull that moisture back into the soil. And so the mulch kind of acts like a sponge and a holding tank, in essence, for that water. And because we're not having to water it as much, it means that I'm not having to think about it or add that step to my process. So if we're out of town, I don't have to worry about making sure that there's somebody there to water it because it's going to take care of itself. Now, there are a few exceptions to every rule with that. When we very first plant things, we do water them in really well just to give them a good drink of water to kind of get them settled into their new environment and to help prevent transplant shock. And if you don't give it a little drink of water, sometimes then the plants just don't um, do as well. In fact, I've seen several plants that didn't get watered in so well that pretty much just shrivel up and die. Um, I don't water them super heavy because I do want the roots to go searching and leave the, the sh you know, the rounded shape of their vessel so that they go seeking water. I want those roots to spread out to make them a more stable base. So I don't do too much, but I do give them a little drink. Another exception to the watering rule is we do water our fruit trees um, about every other week. Now, that sounds like it's not very much, and it's not, but we've also mulched around our fruit trees. We also make it a, a point to plant fairly densely. In doing so, that's keeping the sun off of the soil below. It's keeping the sun off of the mulch, so the sun isn't baking as much of that moisture that's being held in the mulch out because the leaves from the plants are shading the soil, which again helps that mulch to be even more productive. We do use the wood chips in the pathways, but we use straw on the tops of the beds. Now, the straw doesn't seem to hold as much water as the wood chips did, but we do find that it's a little bit easier for some of our seedlings and smaller plants to grow through the straw than it seemed to be with the wood chips. Not that there's anything wrong with wood chips, because that was what we did the first year pretty much exclusively was wood chips everywhere. And, you know, it made sure that there was a really, really healthy fungal network throughout our garden. And in fact, when we went to dig out our sweet potatoes last year, it was funny because our, our roommate was scratching around helping me dig out the sweet potatoes. And she looked and she was like, what is all of this white stuff everywhere? <laughs> and I was like, that would be fungus. That's a good thing. And when you've got all of that um, fungal growth, it works like an internet system for the plant world. It's kind of their way of sharing information. And so it's a good thing to have. But I did notice that when planting seedlings, I direct sow my carrots. Um, they, all of my root vegetables are direct sown. And they seem to have a harder time pushing through the wood chips. And I know I could leave them uncovered until they sprouted and then mulch them, which is what a lot of folks do. But again, with our travel schedule, it doesn't work like that for us because I could be gone for a week to two weeks, and if I'm gone for two weeks and those plants have sprouted, it just opens them up to um, getting picked off by birds and bugs and other pests, and so we try to, to mulch everything right away. 
Another thing we do that makes life easier is we do a lot of companion planting. Now, I did an episode a while back about companion planting, but the reason that helps us to have a garden that is fairly self-sufficient is that it doesn't require extra steps in pest removal and pest remediation because I've got plants that are companion planted together to prevent issues from other insects. So in my tomato area, you're going to find basil planted and you're going to find marigolds. The marigolds attract pollinators because they flower before the tomatoes. And so it, it signals the pollinators that this is a source of, um, of pollen and they're looking for that nectar and they see those flowers and they're going for those. And then when the tomatoes start to bloom, then it's, it's just another bright yellow thing that's going to attract those pollinators to an area they're already comfortable going to. And it means that I get a lot more pollination and I get a lot more fruit. So that's a beautiful, beautiful benefit of the companion planting with the marigolds. And the marigolds and the basil help to prevent tomato hornworms. And tomato hornworms will absolutely wreak havoc on a tomato patch because they're just going to chow down until there's nothing left to chow down on. And by planting these things, knock on wood, we have not had a single tomato hornworm incident so far. Last year, we did, however, have a huge issue with cabbage moths. They were the absolute bane of my garden, and there was nothing I could do that I seemed to get rid of them. And we are um, a farm that is is growing organically, um, so we are not certified organic by the USDA, but we do not use any uh, synthetic fertilizers or any kind of synthetic chemicals. We exclusively use compost, natural fish emulsion, emulsions, homemade uh, liquid fertilizers like the Garden Revenge we talked about, companion planting, and very strategic design methods to make sure that we don't need all of those extra things. But more than just adding all of those harmful chemicals to our bodies and to the soil, those are extra steps that we are trying very hard to avoid. Those cabbage moths, man, I pulled out all the stops trying to get rid of those last year, and it just, it was a failed attempt. Everything we did just failed, and our, our brassicas all got destroyed. I didn't get a single brassica besides my kale that came to fruition last year. Everything got gnawed down to stubs before I was able to get a harvest out of them. This year, we did things a little different. Um, I planted bachelor buttons in with some of my things to draw in pollinators. And then I added some things like chamomile, which has a really nice, pleasant smell, but it hides the smell of the brassicas and helps to prevent those cabbage moths. We also planted some nasturtium this year to serve as a trap crop, and I planted them in different areas this year. I added them to my apple tree guilds. So around my apple trees, you're going to find nasturtium as well as some alliums, and you're going to find some dill. The dill is going to help keep the ants away, and that's going to help my fruit tree to live a nice, long, happy life. And it's going to mean that when my apples start coming on, I'm not going to have apples that are loaded with ants. Now, that's not to say that any of the companion planting is a 100% surefire way to prevent these issues, 
But so far, knock on wood, they've done a great, great job at um, repelling them. And it's a lot easier to repel pests than it is to spend the time trying to get rid of pests. And so we've done a lot of things to do our best to make sure that the pests aren't a problem in the first place so that we don't have to spend extra time eradicating them later. Another thing that we've done that has really helped us to allow this farm to be self-containing or self-sustaining is that we did a very detailed plan um, and decided exactly where everything was going to live. And it was very purposefully done. And that's really important because if I'm planting a a plant that is a full sun plant and I'm planting it in somewhere that's only getting dappled sunlight, which is the sun that creeps in between the leaves, for example, or it's only getting a little bit of morning sun and then it's in the shade the rest of the day, that plant's just not going to do as good as it would if it was planted in full sun where it's intended. So we've been very purposeful about things like that and we have made it a point to to look over our plans once we've got them set in stone and kind of cross-reference them. So when we find an area, I'm cross-referencing a lot of my resources to make sure that they're adequately spaced and that I've got everything as densely planted as I can without overcrowding. Because things like root vegetables, like uh, carrots, for example, they don't like to be crowded. And if you plant them too densely without thinning them out, then they just don't do as well as they could if you take a few minutes to thin them out once they start to pop up. You want to keep the strongest plants that are popping up and you want to just clip the others that are weaker or smaller or too close together. You're going to nip them off at the surface as soon as you can. That means those carrots are well spaced and they're going to dig deep down into the soil and they're going to aerate the soil when you harvest them, which is another thing that we do is we use a lot of root crops to aerate our soil and make sure that the nutrition is getting deep down into that soil. So this year we're actually letting um, a bunch of our radishes bolt and go to seed. They currently are covered in seed pods. And if you've never seen a radish seed pod, they're fascinating. Um, I know Bob and Tammy, our roommate, um, were both kind of intrigued. I had actually never grown um, radishes until the seeding phase. I had always just harvest them around 25 to 30 days when the bulb is ready to eat, when the, you know, the root. But this time I wanted to try something a little different and they've gone crazy. I mean, gosh, they were what, probably four foot tall, Bob. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing because they have really pretty little purple and white flowers on them. A few of them are pink. And so they're attracting pollinators in and the seed pods, man, there are so many seed pods on these plants. And those are shaped. If you've never seen one, they're shaped kind of like an okra without the furry texture. And they're small about the size of a snap pea or a green bean. 
And so it makes it really fun to see these little tiny spiky things hanging out on our crops. And it actually increases our harvest and our yield because the seed pods on radishes are edible and they're delicious. They taste like a milder version of the radish that they are um, belonging to, maybe mixed with a little bit of a cabbagey taste, I guess. And they have the crunch of a snap pea or a green bean. And you can eat them just as they are. I like to just roam around the garden and pick a few and snack on them while I'm out there working. Or you can harvest them in their young tender stage like that and pickle them. And they're delicious. You can let them sit on the vine until the seed pods are fully developed and mature and start to dry, and you now have seed saved, and that's exactly what we're doing. So we're planting a bunch of those seed pods. Once they get good and dry, we're going to harvest these seeds for them. Obviously, they've done well, so it's a bit of a land race. They've they've created a great harvest and they've done a great job of, of seeding um, lots of seed pods. So we're going to scatter them all over the new property to start aerating the soil over there. The soil on the new property is, well, it's terrible to be quite honest, but it's such a large area that it's going to take us time to get it all developed and get the soil as nutritious and healthy as the soil that we're growing in now. But by doing these little things, um, you know, letting these go to seed, what we're doing is we're creating some shade underneath and creating a tiny little microclimate where I was able to grow some more kale um, because it was getting plenty of shade from the overgrown radishes. So it wasn't quite so hot at the soil level. And so I actually planted some kale and it's doing great. My peas, I actually was able to uh, get a second harvest from them because again, it was cooler, created a microclimate because my peas are interwoven with my radishes and so that was a benefit to it um you know some of the other things that we've done we have an an aeration system an irrigation system not aeration excuse me irrigation system and it includes things like soaker hoses and drip irrigation and it's got a moisture meter that is automated so it senses the moisture in the air if it's raining it knows it doesn't need to turn on if it's been dry it knows and so it will pre um you know predetermine that and it'll just turn on so that's pretty handy we also have an overhead sprinkler system. I typically would not recommend using overhead watering only because it can lead to things like powdery mildew on things like your squash and cucumbers and large leafy things. Um, it can also, if you water during the daylight hours, it can lead to sun scald. And since we do a lot of our work at night to avoid the heat and humidity, we never water during the day. We almost exclusively water at night. But having the automated system for irrigation is a beautiful thing. Um, there are little levers that you can twist and determine which beds you want to make sure are getting water and which ones don't necessarily need it. Um, right now we have a couple of beds that are empty. I'm letting them rest before I plant the next round of crops in them. Um, and I've got my compost sitting on them to kind of marinate its way down through the soil levels. And I'll be planting that out. Um, we're actually on a work trip now in Pittsburgh. And when we get home from Pittsburgh, I'm going to be putting another um, 
another succession planting out of squashes as well as beans. We're going to actually be planting a ton of beans this year and I'm going to be planting some more lettuce and harvesting the lettuce that we have. Um, I'm probably going to plant some more tomatoes, believe it or not, even though it's almost July. Um, when I tell people I'm planting tomatoes in nearly July, they look at me like I have two heads. But here's the thing. The tomatoes that I have in the ground now have blossoms on them. And in the very near future, they're going to start having baby tomatoes on them. So if I plant some tomato starts now that are not at that flowering stage, by the time this round of tomatoes is in the fruiting stage, the others are going to be in the blossoming stage. So it allows me to get even more harvests of tomatoes out and extend my growing season. Last year, we actually were harvesting tomatoes in December in zone 6A in Ohio. I know that's crazy. Never in a million years would I have thought that I would be harvesting tomatoes in Ohio in December, but there we were. My plants were almost seven foot tall. They were trellised really well with a suspension system that we set up and they were just growing and growing and growing and they were still thriving. They actually did pretty well until about the middle of December when we started getting some pretty hard frosts in the evening and that finally wiped them out. But our trellising system is something that we do, again, that helps with um, later on down the line work. We do put a lot of effort into the planning and setup phases of our garden. But once we've got everything set into the ground, really, it's kind of a, I don't want to say set it and forget it, but it's a set it and monitor it occasionally situation. Um, with our trellising system, we have built a large cage that is suspended by two, um, two by threes. And that cage is just leftover fencing we had from when our puppies were little. We used it as a temporary fence until the privacy fence went in to keep the pups in the yard. But then when we got the privacy fence, we no longer needed the welded wire. So we made a frame for that by we, I mean, Bob. Bob made a frame for that and Bob made poles to put it on and braces for it. And we hang that. It's a six foot tall. And then I use jute or hemp cord and I attach my tomato, um, my main leaders to that string to support them. And as they grow, and I do it with a very, very, very gentle slip knot so that as the tomatoes grow and expand, it's not going to create a pinch point, which will cause a weak spot on your plant, but it's going to expand with it. But if we get really crazy winds like we did last week, then the tomatoes are supported and they're less likely to snap off um, with the force of the wind blowing them from side to side. By having these things supported and trellised, I don't have to go back through and manage storm damage in the garden. It means that I don't have to go through and try to dig around to find the plants. They're all sus suspended and I can just follow the string down to find out if there's another plant below. Um, as my tomatoes are planted, I plant them um, pretty deep. So I actually plant almost all the way up to the first set of leaves um, on the bottom. That creates a much stronger root system, which again develops a thicker, stronger tomato stalk. It means my harvest season is going to be extended quite substantially because these things are going to be really tough and sturdy plants. It's setting myself up for success in the future. Another thing that we've done 
is that we've talked to a couple of friends and family members who are really excited and and anxious to learn what we're doing. And so we've we've talked to a few of them about what we do and showed them kind of our systems and processes. And we do have a roommate and and Tammy takes great care of the pups when we're out of town. She makes sure that they have adequate food and water and takes them out for bathroom breaks and things like that. And having that friend to rely on saves us a ton of money, first of all, for the cost of boarding a dog. And second of all, it means that I don't really have to think much about it. I just have to check with her schedule and say, hey, are you going to be around? We're going to be out of town. Does that work? And if she's going to be around, I know I don't have to worry anymore about taking care of the pups because I know she's going to do it. And because she's gotten so excited about the garden and really watched it grow, she's developed quite a green thumb, whether she'll admit it or not. And so she can tell um, by digging your finger into the soil now and finding how far down the wood chips or the straw are still damp. And if either of them are showing any signs of dehydration, she's just going to go ahead and go out there and water. And usually she'll shoot me a text message and say, you know, hey, I watered the garden today. Hey, I watered the front garden today or whatever the case may be. She also takes a daily pop over to look at the fish pond and make sure that the fish are all alive and well and will occasionally feed those for us. And then she will also check on our chickens every day and collect the eggs. Now our feed system for our chickens, it's a really simple gravity-fed setup. We're going to be modifying it a little bit, but currently it's just a plastic specialized chicken feed um, device and the chickens can dig around and eat what they want. We've got a little, um, like a shelf built above it out of some plastic roofing material. And that prevents uh, moisture from getting into the food a little bit more than just a wing and a prayer. <laughs> Jokes intended. And <laughs> it, it definitely helps things out there. Um, so in the chicken coops, we have straw down in their run. That's not to prevent them from scratching our grass and things below at all. But what it does is it gives them some cleanliness. It it means that they're not walking around in their own excrement all day, every day. And it also makes it a lot easier for us to clean out their run in their coop by having a little bit of that organic material in there when the time comes to clean it out um, you know, I've got nice, fresh, clean, easy to get to um, things. And so that's something that we do. Uh, we've also talked to other friends because while we absolutely love Tammy and adore her, she has a life too. And it gets quite busy as well because she is a dancer. And so between her dance schedule and her regular nine to five job schedule and her personal life, there are times where she's not available to take care of the critters while we're gone. And so we have other friends that will pop by and take care of the dogs for us. 
and, you know, make sure that the chickens have food and water. And that's another thing. Um, we don't have to fill their feed or their water very often because we went with a little bit larger size of a feed vessel and it's enough to feed them for quite a bit, um, more than a couple days. I mean, we're looking at probably every seven to 10 days we have to put food in it. And with the other two areas, you know, by... By having more than one water dish, it means that the chickens have options. Now they like the they like a very specific watering dish, and they will go flock into that one. However, if it's empty or all of the slots are full, then they will absolutely use one of the other waterers. So we have two waterers in their coop at any given point to make sure that we don't have to drop what we're doing to put water in a bottle to make sure that our, our animals can have something to eat and drink. Um, planting in guilds is something that's been really important. So it kind of comes back to that companion planting a little. So we talked a little bit about my banana trees and how excited we are about the bananas. But one of the things we talked about earlier is that the bananas are super heavy feeders. Well, the obvious solution is to continually put liquid and, um, solid fertilizer down around the banana trees, but what also works really well is just to throw some extra compost there or even just food scraps. Um, I had a banana the other day and I just chucked the banana peel over by the bananas to let it naturally rot and break down. Um, but I'm going to be planting green beans around the, the banana tree um, so that they can naturally fix the nitrogen in the air into little nodules on the roots and then as the banana or the, I'm sorry the green beans die they will release that nitrogen back into the soil so it's a way to add that extra fertilizer to the soil without having to do the extra step of physically depositing the fertilizer and it's a way for me to make sure that my banana has all of its needs met um, that's a lot of what we do to make sure that our garden is pretty self-sufficient. And these are a lot of, of principles of permaculture. Um, the idea of permaculture is to kind of mimic nature because nature doesn't spray a bunch of artificial solutions onto the plants to make them grow better. Um, they're going to kind of be a survival of the fittest and they're going to deposit their leaves from the, you know, the upper canopy levels and the lower canopy levels as they shed their leaves. They're going to naturally drop those on the ground. They're going to compost and they're going to fertilize the plants below, including themselves. And so all of these things we're doing is mimicking nature. And if you look at a forest, a forest grows on its own. It doesn't require humans to go in and do anything. And so that's why for us, the permaculture method um, and, and principle and ideas and all of the things really helps us to have little input into um, the garden to make it pretty self-reliant. That's what we do, and I thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I promise I'm going to try to be better about getting an episode out more regularly. Um, next week, we are going to be talking about weeds and um, what weeds may indicate about your soil. 
Um, so a little preview, if you will, is that if you have a lot of dandelions in your soil, um, it may be a good indicator that you've got some really, really hard soil um, because dandelions have enormous tap roots and they're dynamic accumulators. They're going to dig really deep down and they're going to break up that soil naturally. It's what nature does to help make sure that some of that organic material from the very tippy top layers of the soil are making their way down deeper into the soil and helping break it up. So if you know that you've got a bunch of dandelions without even digging a hole, you'll know that your soil there is is pretty dense and that that's something that you're going to need to adapt. So we're going to talk about things like that and what the weeds in your in your yard or in your garden can tell you about the needs of the soil below. So look forward to that for next week. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're not already following us on Facebook, be sure to check out the Hogs and Hens Urban Farm Facebook page. You can also find us on Twitter at Hogs and Hens, and you can find us on Instagram at Hogs and Hens Urban Farm. Always available at www.hogsandhensdayton.com. And we will talk to you next week. I hope your garden is growing beautifully, and I wish you the best of luck on your permaculture journey.